Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. The Super Bowl is a singular spectacle in American culture. More than just a championship football game, the Super Bowl has become an unparalleled display of nationalism, consumerism, and culture. But despite its cultural imprint in North America, the Super Bowl has never caught on around the world the way many Americans might assume. Peter Hopsicker and Mark Dyerson look at the magnitude of the Super Bowl as a cultural event and as a de facto national holiday in the United States and the relative lack of interest in the Super Bowl worldwide in their recent book, A Half Century of Super Bowls, National and Global Perspectives on America's Grandest Spectacle, published last year by Routledge. Peter Hopsicker is a professor of kinesiology at Penn State University, Altoona. Mark Dyerson is a professor of kinesiology and history at Penn State and managing editor of the International Journal of the History of Sport. Both are members of Penn State's Center for the Study of Sports and Society. I spoke with them about why the Super Bowl reigns supreme as an American event, but not as a global one. I'm joined now by Peter Hopsicker and Mark Dyerson, who are the editors of A Half Century of Super Bowls. Peter, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you. And Mark, welcome. Thank you. So this book was occasioned by the 50th anniversary of the first Super Bowl back in 2016, and the essays in this book originated in the International Journal of the History of Sport. Uh, Peter, could you talk about getting this special issue together and the uh, significance of this anniversary uh, for taking a closer look at the Super Bowl? Well, uh, to be honest, Mark is our editor for that uh, series, uh, for that journal particularly. Uh, But we pulled uh, several scholars from across the world, actually, to provide perspectives on the Super Bowl um, upon its 50th anniversary. Um, we've seen a lot of evolution in the Super Bowl since 1967, the first one, and it has grown to become uh, more or less a significant global presence in many places of the world. Uh, we tried to get representation from each aspect or each corner of the world, and I think we were pretty successful in that, getting places from Japan, Germany, uh, Canada, Mexico, uh, United States, etc. Uh, it was a great time getting those uh, different scholars and their different perspectives together. Mark, can you tell us a little bit more about the journal and why the Super Bowl was a good fit for a special issue? Well, the journal covers uh, aspects of sport from around the world. It truly is an international journal. We have uh, editors and articles from Africa, Asia, Latin America, Europe, uh, North America. Uh, That's what we try to do. And we do try to focus on contemporary events when one is coming up, a World Cup and Olympic Games, uh, in this case the, the Super Bowl, to connect the historical dimensions with uh, contemporary events and, and try to attract a, a public audience. So um, Peter is actually not old enough to have lived through every Super Bowl. I'm not only old enough to have done that, but I watched on TV uh, the first Super Bowl in 1967. So for me... It was sort of astounding in some ways as a historian that of an event, because I'm of the era, that felt to me 
com- comparatively recent was, was actually a half century old in in 2017 that 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 uh, uh, the the clock had turned. So, Mark, let me ask you about your memories of watching that first game and how difficult or how easy was it to imagine uh, while watching it that the Super Bowl would turn into this this mega event and this mega spectacle. You know, the first one was not honestly a big deal. I was a elementary school kid living in Denver, Colorado then, and a big Denver Broncos fan uh, who it looked like in the 60s would never even get close to a Super Bowl. Uh, so I was more of an AFL fan and interested in it from from that dimension, and the Chiefs in that era played in the same um, division as the Broncos. Uh, but it was truly not a big deal. In fact, the NFL championship games that preceded it on on television that I have vague memories of, like the Ice Bowl earlier in the 60s between the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers, uh, had bigger audiences and, and college football bowl games, you know, easily sort of superseded the, the, the Super Bowl. And that wasn't even the name of it yet. They can't come up with that catchphrase a few years later. So it was another football game. It was really interesting. It was, it was the first time that the, um, old American Football League took on the National Football League head-to-head, and everybody wanted to see what was happening. No one was surprised that Green Bay and the senior circuit won. Uh, but uh, I don't think as a elementary school kid in the um, late 1960s, I had any idea it would turn into the spectacle that it became um, a few decades later. So, Peter, your chapter in the book addresses the sort of reception and uh, magnitude of the Super Bowl over its 50 years. And you write that it was Super Bowl three, the Jets famous upset with Joe Namath over the Colts that kind of put the Super Bowl on the map. And I believe it was after that Super Bowl that longtime New York Times uh, reporter Robert Lipsight coined the term Super Bowling. And you put that term in your title. What did Robert Lipsight mean by Super Bowling? And uh, what did it mean to you as you uh, wrote a whole chapter about Super Bowling? Well, Super Bowling was a, a phrase that he used to sort of uh, ca- characterize all the discussions from every different possible angle uh, upon the Super Bowl, pre-game, during game, and post-game. Uh, a lot of it was always the post-game sort of rhetoric of what the Super Bowl meant, uh, how it impacted society, who was involved with it, uh, the commentary that went along with it. Uh, I used that as a platform to sort of uh, launch into sort of an analysis of uh, all the years, all 50 years, of the Super Bowl and how it was perceived by political figures, by celebrities, um, how things had happened in the world, uh, international conflict, um, uh, presidential debates, uh, political news uh, was uh, found in, uh, woven into the discussion of the Super Bowl. And at the same time, how these same figures, how these presidents and senators and celebrities would often use the Super Bowl uh, as a platform for their own, um, their own rhetoric. Uh, we see that today uh, still with the uh, jostling of celebrities trying to become uh, the halftime show or to become uh, the national anthem speakers. We see the uh, several years ago when Barack Obama and uh, John McCain were on the halftime show uh, for some discussions during the Super Bowl. Um, those sorts of things. Um, politicians want to know that they're watching the Super Bowl and that the people know that they're watching this all-American event and participating in it. Um, we have the tragedies of war, you know, the uh, first Gulf War in 1991 and the questions of whether or not we should play the Super Bowl. And it becomes sort of this, this international dis- or national discussion 
um, that this international event, uh, this international war event, sort of uh, created. Uh, so it was an it was an interesting concept that was uh, Robert Lipsight did so back so far back in the day. Um, that it was a it was a really great uh, again a good platform to sort of uh, dive into the uh, the opinions of what people thought of the Super Bowl in the United States throughout the years and how those evolved and changed. And among the moments you look at as you trace this year-by-year history is the question of Inauguration Day in 1985 for the newly re-elected President Reagan. Um, And there was some question about the timing or the scheduling of the inauguration and the Super Bowl. What was that issue and how was it resolved? Well, it's it's funny because the issue is actually brought to the attention by the people who make calendars of all things. Because they make calendars three years out, apparently back in the day when they had, well, they still have paper calendars, but you know what I mean. Um, and the deal was that inauguration day, January 20th and Super Bowl landed on the same day. And so the inauguration day was moved by constitutional custom and tradition to the Monday after the Super Bowl and media leapt on that, um, uh, on the fact that there was the Super Bowl itself. The Super Bowl became more important than the day we inaugurate the president. When in fact, historically it had happened five other times, and I can't name them off the top of my head, but five additional times where Inauguration Day happened to land on a Sunday, and by constitutional tradition, they just moved the, the ceremony to a Monday. It was more actually probably about the Sabbath than it was ever about the Super Bowl. In fact, the five previous dates that it had happened uh, were not during the Super Bowl era. So that became sort of an urban legend that the Super Bowl had moved to Inauguration Day when actually at the end of the day, it really wasn't true. But nonetheless, as you say, it people sort of interpreted it as a validation of the Super Bowl's place as the preeminent national holiday. Um, of course, as you mentioned, that definitely came to a head in 1991, the memorable national anthem by Whitney Houston, the military flyover. Uh, do you look at that Super Bowl as sort of the time when the event was cemented as a nationalistic and even militaristic holiday in the United States? Well, we can go back before that. We can go to the hostage crisis in 1991. We can go to 1967 when uh, the Super Bowl was so-called the kickoff to the nation's bicentennial. Um, But really, that was really, I think, at the time, a very significant connection to uh, the international conflict of uh, the Gulf War, um, Desert Storm. Uh, From that point on, I think we've seen even more of the red, white, and blue and the more connections to Americanism and nationalism than we ever have before. Um, When it came to the um, tragedies of 9-11, the NFL and the people putting together the NFL story for the weekend, the NFL week, were basically advised by a lot of people to sort of tone down the red, white, and blue and not use it as a platform to sell their stuff. And instead, uh, Fox Network at the time made it a big grand spectacle of Americanism and red, white, and blue and nationalism to a significant degree higher than it ever had been before. So I think you're right. I think in 1991, we can say that there was definitely a a significant uptick. But even back in the 70s, there was uh, the reading of the uh, the reciting of the national anthem. There were uh, symbolisms such as the Apollo astronauts coming back and uh, taking part in in other pregame activities. It's always been connected to some part of American nationalism in one way or another. But again, I think you're right. I think in 1991 and then again during the uh, 9-11 year that we've made uh, some significant strides in that. And I think if you watch the Super Bowl this year, I, you know, keep an eye out for those same sort of things. One of the more recent things I think I pointed to was the uh, television broadcast of our uh, military personnel, men and women overseas, watching the Super Bowl. 
Um, and that sort of represents both, uh, I would say, both the connection to um, these people trying to participate in something of their home, you know, trying to make them feel like they're more at home, and at the same time sort of demonstrating to the United States, people of, of America, that uh, we are out there and we are safe and we are protected by our military personnel. Mark, you look at the global reception or lack thereof of the Super Bowl in various cultures and countries, uh, and you find quite a gap between what Americans perceive about the global impact of the Super Bowl and the reality. How were you as a scholar and as a collaborator with these other uh, researchers uh, first attuned to that gap between what we think, how big we think the Super Bowl is around the world um, and, and the limits to, to how much it really matters to other countries? Well, I think living in the United States, um, I hear the same drumbeat of um, rhetoric from the NFL and from television networks about the Super Bowl being a truly global event and billions of TVs will be on around the world, even in nations that normally don't care that much about American football. They'll be watching uh, American football. So, you know, having grown up with that, living in the United States and, and, and hearing that notion, um, but traveling overseas, uh, dealing with people from other countries, editing an international journal and being told uh, that in spite of what you folks think inside of the United States, this is really pretty much just a, a U.S. event. The rest of the world doesn't care. You know, I've always been struck by that dichotomy of um, – the desire of corporate interests like uh, TV uh, broadcasters in the NFL to make it a global event uh, and uh, the American government and the American people to sort of um, have it be a part of their uh, global hegemony and uh, the myths in the United States about that versus the reality outside the interesting thing is you would think it would be easy to get television ratings for Super Bowls both in the United States and overseas, since that's such a crucial part of what makes the Super Bowl popular, the fact that it's on television, it grew up in the television era, you know, it's one of the, the certainly the biggest spectacles on, on American TV, and it's maddeningly difficult to get real data about uh, who actually watches, a little bit in the United States, but more so overseas, and so what became apparent as I talked to scholars and got them to commit to looking at its reception in other parts of the world. And as I looked myself was that the NFL talks about potential audience, that, you know, it's made deals with networks in China, uh, in uh, Europe, in, in, in Asia, in Latin America, and other places, and, and 1.5 billion TVs could be tuned into the Super Bowl, which would, for a one-day event, put it on par with its true competitors for, for global interest, World Cup soccer and uh, the Olympic Games, which are multi-day events. But, you know, 1.5 billion, an average Olympics or World Cup over uh, two and a half weeks draw upwards of 40 billion viewers. So 1.5 billion on one, one day would, would show that American culture is really becoming global. But when you actually look at the numbers of not who potentially could watch, but who does watch? You know, what we discovered was that um, 
in Mexico and the United States, or Mexico and Canada, which border the United States, there's actually a pretty large viewership. So if you're next door neighbors, for better or worse, you are. It's at least a multinational event in that sense. But beyond Mexico and Canada, the actual number of folks tuning in, both historically and in um, the current period is relatively small. Uh, it's an audience that numbers in uh, the lower millions. Um, you know, not not much to push it up over the 150 or 180 million or so who are going to watch it in the United States, and nowhere near. The, the what the NFL would like us to thank. Yeah, there's a fascinating chapter in this book about the reception in Canada of the Super Bowl and the Canadian yeah. media uh, disparaged for many years the Super Bowl as not significant, and yet it turns out that the Canadian public, when you look at They're actual viewing habits, uh, it was a different story. Uh, it was very popular in Canada, but outside, as you mentioned, North America, it didn't take hold. Mark, I want to ask you, you use the phrase in your chapter, the, quote, gospel of America. American exceptionalism. And it made me wonder, is it is that exceptionalism so baked into self-perception in American culture that uh, we as Americans tend to think uh, we are this powerful nation, this is our preeminent spectacle, it should be making a big global impact, and it's hard for us to reconcile when it doesn't. Exactly. And in many ways, with many cultural products, the United States does exert an enormous influence on the world that everybody loves our our blue jeans and our Hollywood movies and our popular music and our uh, microcomputers. You know, these are things we've given the world. And I think it frustrates us enormously because for Americans, our uh, trinity of national pastimes with American football sort of now in the lead uh, and baseball and basketball uh, in the mix we think of as so crucial to our identity. Why isn't the rest of the world interested in uh, those products as much as they are in, in everything else American? And so I, I think it you know, startles and perplexes and in some way uh, baffles Americans why, why we haven't been able to spread, uh, particularly American football, uh, in, in, into greater parts of the globe. Baseball is in certain parts of the world um, a huge game. Basketball now ranks second to soccer if you look in, around the world, if you look in terms of both participation and spectatorship. So we've done pretty well uh, with those unique American brands in other parts of the globe. But American football, which is now you know number one uh, and far and ahead away, uh, even in the United States, uh, of baseball and basketball, just has not made a global dent uh, outside of, uh, and I really like Craig, Craig Greenberg's piece on Canada as well, outside of Canada and Mexico, um, and the Canadians both love it and hate it at the same time, uh, American football just hasn't made a dent in, in global consciousness. Can I ask you, Mark, about one more detail in your chapter uh, before we move on? And that was you mentioned that the Super Bowl or Super Bowl viewing got a favorable write-up in China Daily, the communist-controlled uh, news organ in China. Um, and you uh, note that um, Americans might not be reassured or might be alarmed to know that uh, the Super Bowl is getting covered so favorably in that particular news outlet. What do you make of, of that mention in that publication? 
it's just strange. I mean, it's hard to get inside of it from the Chinese side why the one of the official organ, organs of the government in China was uh, telling 1.5 billion or however many there are Chinese that, you know, the Super Bowl is a pretty cool thing. Um, other than just pushing the notion of maybe this is a way to study Americans and, and, and learn their habits. So um, I don't have, unfortunately, I don't read or speak Chinese, and we couldn't get anyone from China to contribute. That I think that would have been fascinating. We tried to get a Chinese scholar to take a look at, you know, why would anybody in China be interested? Um, um, but uh, I, I don't have more for you than that, that tidbit that, uh, the government of China, at least in that, I don't know what they'll do in, in 2019 with the trade war, uh, but at least at times has favorably pitched the Super Bowl to Chinese audiences. Well, I'm going to be looking for follow-ups in the International Journal of the History of Sport on that point. We, we can we can hope for that. Yeah, we'd like to get. We had a great piece from Japan, and and Germany, um, and a couple other places. But I think China. We'd really like to know about China, and we'd like to know a little bit more about some about Russia, about some other uh, major players in the world, if they're paying any attention or what they make of the Super Bowl. So, uh, if Peter will get on the stick, you know, Volume Two might be in the works here. Hopefully, before the the. Uh, the golden anniversary. I won't be around then for the 100th Super Bowl. So, Peter, there's a chapter in here by another contributor about the significance of commercials uh, in this overall spectacle, uh, because as you write, this event is so is about so much more than football, and uh, it's now become an event featuring television commercials, where commercials are an object of, uh, a, rather than sort of a distraction and a sales pitch, they sort of become an event unto themselves. And this chapter traces it back to, traces this phenomenon back to 1984 with a big ad from Apple. Can you tell us about the ad and why that ad in 1984 was such a turning point? Well, it was so unique. Uh, I am old enough to remember the 1984 commercial watching it on TV. And I remember looking at my father and my father looking at me and neither of us had any idea what just happened. It was a, <laughs> it was a one minute mini movie that made such an impact. Um, that it really changed uh, how they looked at the marketing of the Super Bowl and became what's, what's now known as Ad Bowl. Um, essentially, what marketers figured out very quickly, uh, like Mark said, is the millions upon millions of people who were watching that program at the exact same time became a very captive audience to put your product up in front of them. Um, in the 70s, one of the most uh, memorable uh, advertisement or commercial at the time was this master lock commercial, which I also remember on TV, uh, where uh, they shot a bullet through the master lock and, and basically said, you know, look, it's still held together. And marketers realized that that was the most memorable commercial of the Super Bowl. So when Apple decided to make their, their 1984 commercial, um, it was certainly around the idea that they had this captive audience watching this game and they're going to make a significant impact. Uh, from that point on, it became a very, uh, a very well-known, a very popular, very followed uh, sort of competition. Uh, we no longer uh, wanted to run to the restroom or run to the refrigerator uh, during the commercial breaks. We wanted to sit there and see what they were all about. Uh, and if we missed them, we were disappointed. I mean, you think back in the 80s and early 90s, we didn't have things like YouTube and the Internet to go back and watch them again. We didn't have to have our DVRs where we could pause the TV and start it again. If you missed it and weren't taping it on your VCR, you, you missed it. Um, now they're releasing commercials early online. 
Um, they're having uh, television specials on commercials. I think that's the funniest thing. Uh, in that chapter, there was the mention of the uh, the network television special on the greatest Super Bowl commercials ever. And we're actually to a point where we're watching television shows that are all commercials. Um, and every year we look for an increased price and how much it'll cost for your 30 seconds. Again, this year for the second year in a row, it'll be uh, in, a, in excess of $5 million for 30 seconds of time. Um, but we'll be talking about the commercials for months after the Super Bowl. Um, and uh, yeah, you just can't, you just can't turn down that sort of exposure. Uh, one thing I tell my students um, that I try to get to, to wrap their heads around is that when they're watching the Super Bowl, they're doing what two thirds, three quarters of the country are doing at the same time. And that's a very rare event. And uh, marketers certainly want to jump on that each year. Do you see that, Peter, as sort of the ultimate triumph of commercialism, the fact that we would watch a television special featuring nothing but commercials and that uh, when the Super Bowl happened, uh, the commercials themselves would be an object of such uh, fascination and celebration and that they would cost $5 million for 30 seconds? Uh, a lot of people read into that and, and your contributors in this book say this, this is saying something about American commercialism. Yeah. Well, um, the Super Bowl is also a, a demonstration of our, our, our consumerism, our consumption, uh, our ability to buy things. And we want to put out there how amazing uh, the United States and American culture is by look at all these things we can do, look at all these things we can buy. Um, we, we certainly want to use that uh, in many ways as a platform for suggesting how great, again, the United States is compared to other places in the world. Um, and even, you know, as Mark says, it may not be as a, as, as a, ubiquitous global phenomena as the NFL makes it out to be. Uh, still, you know, um, non-United States citizens, when they see it and they try to develop this perception of what the United States is like, um, they can build a lot of that perception through watching those commercials. Um, sort of funny when you think about it, sometimes those commercials are a little, little goofy, you know, when you've got uh, monkeys and orangutans hawking beer or something like that, you know, they sort of, maybe they wonder what's really going on in the United States. But at the end of the day, you'll see the high-end cars and the creativity that go into it. Um, they have contests now for people to actually uh, develop their own scripts and commercials. Um, and if you're a winner, I think it's Doritos that did it. If you win it with the script, then your commercial is there during Super Bowl. Um, so it becomes also this platform for success for some uh, filmmakers or people who want to break into that industry. So it's again, it's a demonstration of, of what we can buy and what we can do in the United States in many ways. Um, I don't know if it's uh, appropriate or not to ask a, a football-related question because the football tends to get um, uh, drowned out uh, by the event uh, that that with all the packaging of the Super Bowl. But my my perception and my memory growing up is that the football game itself always seemed to be a blowout. It always seemed to have so little interest, and I've always wondered if that fact contributed to the focus on everything else about the Super Bowl, the national anthem, the flyover, the commercials. Um, in recent years, that has changed considerably. I looked it up this morning, and I think something like eight of the last ten Super Bowls have been decided by a touchdown or less. Uh, one of them went to overtime a couple of years ago. And now I tune in with the expectation that the football itself will be much more interesting. Uh, this may be purely anecdotal, but uh, do, the, do either of you have thoughts on that, on how it seemed or could it have seemed that the football itself, the quality or lack thereof of the football game, um, turned us to look at other aspects of, of uh, the Super Bowl event to celebrate? Well, I think you're right about that. I don't have the stats in front of me, but the first you know, 20, 25 Super Bowls were blowouts. They were not close at all they were 14 points or more i want to say and you're right you did your stats correctly in the last 10 years 
they have become increasingly closer. Um, I think they did uh, use that as sort of a platform. Uh, some of the things uh, that were criticized in the newspaper, again, with the Super Bowling, were the number of errors, how long the game was, how the, how the games were, blowouts. And I think the NFL tried to uh, create meaning in the game itself by, again, the evolution of the halftime shows, the, the integration of celebrities in both the national anthem and the halftime shows, um, the commercial aspect of it. And now I think what you've seen maybe might be the evolution of a lot of, of finally, I guess, a lot of parody in professional football, maybe, um, in, the, in the sense that uh, free agency and, and, and the constant movement of players to try to have some sort of balance. Um, I think the next probably criticism will be that the Patriots keep winning this too much. Um, but we don't have to look far too far back into history to see the Cowboys and the Steelers having the same sort of dominance. That's right. Well, Mark, let me ask you, as you've looked at the global reception, and you mentioned how other American cultural products, if you will, other cultural exports have gained more traction globally. As you look at this historically, does it seem inevitable to you that it is the Super Bowl, the NFL championship that became this cultural celebration? And if American culture had chosen or settled on something else to be a big event, a big holiday, could something else have gained more traction in a way that the Super Bowl doesn't around the world? Yeah, I I don't think anything is necessarily inevitable. Uh, and I do think that uh, some of the things that you and Peter were, were just talking about in terms of advertisements and marketing the game and that the Super Bowl worked, even when it wasn't much of a, um, a dramatic spectacle in and of itself as a game, all the the baggage that went with it are part of the genius of what the NFL and and television networks did. But let's take, you know, three counterexamples here. Um, when I was a kid, the NFL wasn't on top yet, and baseball was still the national pastime, although quickly losing ground to. Uh, the NFL, and the World Series was a big deal. Now it's seven games and not one, so maybe it doesn't lend itself to a one-day holiday format. Um, but at least had that remained the American, uh, and, and those days in the fall were in some ways a, a week-long celebration of Americanism, had that remained our um, sort of national sporting holiday, in parts of the world, in Japan, in parts of Latin America, in the Caribbean, um, one can imagine that we'd have much greater um, connection with, with with other cultures in terms of a sporting event. Had you know basketball become number one, um, you know maybe the the NBA finals had the NBA become more of a a global league. It certainly is a global league in, in terms of it, its players. Um, and, you know, you could see basketball becoming a, um, a, a, a truly global export in that way uh, for the United States. On the other hand, um, and I'm old enough to remember that even back in the 70s, a lot of folks were saying, that soccer will become the next big American thing and supplant American football. You know, 50 years later, it still hasn't happened. But should the U.S. become less parochial in certain ways and go ahead and adopt association football, what we call soccer, as its national pastime, uh, you know, then we would 
truly be playing on a global stage for a for a world championship in in ways the Super Bowl just can't ever match. So um, um, uh, curiously, we picked the most insular and the most American and the most difficult of sports we're interested in to to really push in the last half century as our big export. Final question. I want to ask each of you this. Um, I think I speak for a lot of listeners to our podcast when I say that I am a passionate sports fan. I enjoy watching sports, and I'm also very interested in the academic and scholarly study of sports, uh, particularly sport and culture, uh, which both of you are uh, immersed in. Uh, my question is, does the academic study of sport increase or decrease your enjoyment of watching sports? As you plan your Super Bowl parties this week, um, are you when the game comes on, are you able to sit back and watch the game? And what's it like to watch it through the lens of, of how you've uh, looked at the Super Bowl in a, in a scholarly way? Peter, can I start with you? Sure, you can start with me. Um... Well, I think it, I mean, I understand what you're saying. It's, it's sort of, it's sort of difficult. There's, there's times when, uh, I will have my friends at set parties tell me to cut it out when I start providing <laughs> uh, stats or some sort of details or, or I ask them, I point out things like, you know what they're doing here, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I can still enjoy the game for, for what it is in terms of a football game. Um, when I have no, no dog in the fight, it's even more so. Um, uh, but when I, I'm a New York Giants fan. And I would be remiss to point out that today's January 25th, and it is the 32nd anniversary of the Giants beating Mark's Denver Broncos in Super Bowl, I believe it was 7 uh, 21. Uh, so I have to, yeah, that was I a close game. In this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I can, I can still watch it. Um, I do, uh, when I watch it in the back of my head, I do note things constantly about things to bring up in class, about things for maybe the, the next. Uh, um, research article or the next interview, um, you know, some timely incidents or even just note how things have changed. Like, how is this different than what it was last year? What's that going to mean into the future? So I think that people who don't study sports or, or particularly don't study the Super Bowl, um, maybe they are, are not looking at it in the way that I'm looking at it. But that doesn't mean that when it's a close game or it's an overtime game or my team's in it, that I still don't have a good time with my friends and still don't root for teams and still don't, and still don't enjoy it for the, the physical excellence of the game, for the physical prowess of those players. Mark, how about you? If I had you over to my Super Bowl party, would you keep reminding me that the Super Bowl isn't a big deal around the world? I, I, I hope I would be more polite than that <laughs> and, and keep that to myself. When I have done that, it hasn't gone over very well. So Hard to believe. I hope I would. Yeah, hard to believe. I hope I would learn my lessons that people don't want to be lectured at a party. Uh, fascinating. Uh, I'm with Peter. When my team is in, when Denver's in the Super Bowl, that maximizes my enjoyment. Maybe not some of those Super Bowls they played against the Giants and the 49ers and the Redskins that got blown out. But, you know, that, that really hypes me up. When this year it's two teams I don't really care about or one I love to root against, the Patriots, I'll watch, I'll enjoy the commercials. Uh, my family will tell me not to get too academic about it. On the other hand, you know, little things always intrigue me, even in writing our introduction. I think in last year's Super Bowl, you know, I was fascinated with the commercials. Scholars who study the Super Bowl tend to push the line that, you know, it's sort of a right-wing, more Republican, capitalistic, nationalistic endeavor, which I always push back as at as a, a too simplistic notion of the role of football in American culture. Plenty of Democrats, plenty of 
lefty liberals like me watch and love the Super Bowl too. And I was really fascinated by the uh, 84 Lumber commercial and some of the other commercials. You know, I accept that corporations are in it to make money and are just going to go with the flow, but I was shocked to sort of see them take a political stance in some ways, even a quiet little one on on some political issues. So something I didn't frankly think I would ever see. So there will be a little academic piece of me alive and watching to, to pull on later. But mostly I'll just be rooting against the Patriots and eating a lot of chicken wings. All right. Well, I hope you both enjoy the game, and then I hope on Monday morning you can resume in earnest uh, writing some journal articles and uh, future books about it. Uh, thanks to both of you. Peter Hopsicker, professor of kinesiology at Penn State Altoona, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. This was a good time. And Mark Dyerson, professor of kinesiology at Penn State. Mark, thanks. Thanks for having us. We enjoyed it. Peter Hopsicker and Mark Dyerson are the editors of A Half Century of Super Bowls, National and Global Perspectives on America's Grandest Spectacle. I'm Nathan Birma. You've been listening to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.